The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to episode number six of the Paul Leslie Hour. I'm your host, Paul Leslie, and we have a very special guest on this episode. His name is Lawrence Grobel. Like many people who are interested in interviewing, I own a copy and studied Lawrence Grobel's book, The Art of the Interview. It was the first book of Lawrence Grobel's that I'd ever read, and it's pretty much the definitive source. And what I mean by that, it's the definitive source for people who are looking for information about the craft of interviewing someone. There have been certain people in history who have had access to some of the most celebrated, famous, and in many cases, reclusive people. The people who don't grant interview requests have been interviewed by Larry Grobel. And having met him in person, I kind of understand why that is. I'm going to be sharing some more information about that after the interview. In addition to writing The Art of the Interview, he's written more than two dozen other books. I've read his fiction. I have his book, Catch a Fallen Star, which I enjoyed very much. He's someone who, I would say, is observant of people. And when I was reading his fiction, I kind of got a sense that perhaps some of the characters were based on people that he had interviewed, and maybe some of the events as well. He's interviewed just about everybody. I could sit here and list them all, but let's just say that there's a lot of them, and it's very impressive. This interview with Lawrence Grobel was done shortly after the release of his book, You Talking to Me, and I hope you enjoy. Our special guest, Lawrence Grobel, has interviewed just about everyone. Joyce Carol Oates called him the Mozart of interviewers. He was named the Interviewer's Interviewer by Playboy magazine. Writer's Digest referred to him as legendary. The author of 25 books, Lawrence Grobel, that's Larry to his friends, joins us to talk about his 2016 book, You Talking to Me, Lessons I Learned Along the Celebrity Trail. And it's a perfect excuse to talk to you. And I know there's a lot of things we can delve into. You've interviewed many, many celebrities, legends themselves, Al Pacino, Marlon Brando. We could go on and on. So, Larry, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I just actually had to get something off to the Los Angeles Daily News newspaper because they wanted something to me, for me to write about Zsa Zsa Gabor because, you know, she died recently. And so um, I got to do that which is what I did is I went to my book because in you talking to me, there's a lesson about Jaja. And I said, okay, I will, I will plagiarize myself and take half of that and then add a few things to it. Been busy. Was that correct? 25 books? Yes. Yeah. 25 books. I know it's amazing, but I see, I look at it in context of Joyce Carol Oates and I say to myself, boy, I'm just a, a, a novice. You know, she, she writes every time I, I talk to her, She's got three more books out, and that's like within six months. <laughs> it's amazing to me. Now, anyone listening to you talk, they might detect a bit of New York. A bit of New York, yeah. It hasn't left me. I was born in Brooklyn, but I left Brooklyn when I was nine years old and moved to Long Island, or Long Island, as we say. And I 
went to uh, high school there and junior high school. And then uh, I went to UCLA when I was 17 years old in Los Angeles. And after four years, I went to the Peace Corps in Ghana. So, And then I spent a year traveling around the world, returned to New York for a couple of years to start my life as a writer, and then moved out to Los Angeles. And I've been here ever since. People from Brooklyn are typically good talkers. <laughs> yeah, and we also don't don't we also distinguish between the words orange and 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 wait orange orange and the California say orange orange right yeah and and Mary Mary and uh, Mary three different sounds and Californians say Mary 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 so I used to when I first came to to California. It was very easy getting dates because girls like to hear my, quote, accent, you know, that I could distinguish words that they all had together. Hmm. Well, this book of yours, it's a collection of all of the experiences that you've had interviewing celebrities and kind of what you learned from that experience. Right. What got you to decide to write this one? Well, this one came about, I was asked by the... The College Journalism Society, I don't know the exact name of it, but they, they um, asked me back in 2010, I think it was, if I would come and speak to – it was the National Scholastic Press Association, and they had a convention in 2011. And so they asked me if I would be the keynote speaker there. And I said, well, what would you like me to talk about? And they said, well – why don't you talk about what you've learned about, you know, talking to all these people? So I thought, okay, that was challenging in a way because I, I really never thought about it. So I said, okay. Uh, and I came up with about 20 lessons, so to speak, you know, talking to Truman Capote and uh, Luciano Pavarotti and Patty Hearst, whatever. So I did this lecture and it was in a very big hall and, uh, a lot of people came up to me, a lot of young, you know, college editors and all, and, and had a lot of questions and wanted me to expand on part certain things. And then I thought when I, w I went to Rancho La Puerta, which is uh, I go there every year, twice a year, actually, to do writing workshops. It's a it's a health spot in Tecate, Mexico, which is only an hour from San Diego, four hours from Los Angeles. And it's a wonderful place. It's it really is. Uh, the, you know, I've met Bill Moyers there and he's lectured and, you know, there's quite a lot of people there that go there. And so I decided they always asked me to do a lecture on Saturday night. So I did this lecture and I said, you know, let me see if I can do the same lecture to a, a group of people who are adults, who are psychiatrists, who are CEOs of company, because it's not a cheap place to go to. So usually, you know, they're, they're pretty advanced in their careers. And I talked about these lessons I learned. And afterwards, a psychiatrist came up to me who was there and said, you know, you have a book here. He said, this is a very interesting subject. So I said, mm, you know, that's an interesting idea. I said, but I, there's only 20 or so people I'm talking about. I need to really expand that. So when I got home, I took out, I have a list of like all the people I've interviewed. And I just went down this list and I said, what did I learn from and everyone from James Franco to Kiefer Sutherland? You know, what did I learn from Rodney Dangerfield? What did I learn from Sharon Stone? What did I learn from Willie Shoemaker or Jeff Daniels or Goldie Hawn or John Voigt or Henry Fonda, etc.? And so some of them, nothing came to mind. So I would skip over it. But almost with a, with, with 120 of them, 
I had a lesson I learned. There was something I learned from each of these people that was different than something I learned from the others. So I, I started writing that down. So once I started getting the, the lesson itself, the, the title, I said, okay, now I have to write it. And I figured it would take me, uh, if I did one every two or three days, you know, it's going to take me a year to write the book. So I wrote a few of them and I put them aside. And then I got involved with my my other work. And, you know, if you get writing assignments, uh, you, you know, or I was working on books at the time and I, I just put things, you know, I, I, I got back involved in my other stuff. And that often happens with me. And then I, I got interviewed by Mark Marin on his WTF podcast two years ago in the summer. And he said, you must really hate me. I remember we started saying, I said, what do you mean? He says, well, because I'm, I'm so successful at what I do and I sort of doing what you do. I said, well, you don't do what I do because you don't really prepare and I prepare a great deal and I, I talk much more in depth. You do, uh, you know, an hour, maybe an hour and a half with a person, but kudos to you. I have, I, I have no resentment of that. So we started talking about all the people that I've interviewed and he kept saying to me, well, what have you really learned? What did you really learn from any of these people? I mean, is it all just like bullshit or is, you know, do, you know, what, 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 why you keep doing it? And I was like hemming and hawing and I just never really quite answered him. And I, when I listened to this, you know, I, I really don't like listening to it because it bothers me to hear how inarticulate I was when it came to answering the question, what I learned. And the reason was, is because I remembered that I had written some stuff about it and I remembered I wanted to write this book and I didn't want to start talking about it on the radio now. I wanted to get it done. So when I got back, I, I sort of kicked myself in the butt and said, you know, it's time to, to really sit down and, and think about this. And that's what I did. I, I, I started writing it and it was fun. You know, I, I, every, I got inspired by it and I started to write more and more. And the next thing you know, the 120 came up and, and, and I sort of had a book. And that's how it happened. <laughs> You've mentioned a lot of names here of people that you have interviewed. You know, in the book you touch on, Al Pacino, Charlie Sheen, Barbara Streisand, Pavarotti, a lot of people. And a lot of these tales that you tell about your interactions, interviewing them, as you said, you give the, the what I learned, the greater picture. But when you look at all of them as a whole, as a collective body of work, what would you say you've learned? Oh, that's a good question because, you know, that's, that's really a, a huge question. But, you know, there are a number of things, you know, I mean, it's sort of you know, when I boiled down how how to do an interview when I was teaching it, you know, it, it really came down to be prepared. It's almost like the the um, the Boy Scout motto, you know, uh, have confidence. You need the confidence. The only way you get confidence is if you're prepared. And so I think what I've learned over all these years, you know, of doing these things is. That I can do it, you know, that I'm, that I am, I, I have some kind of ability. Part of my personality allows me to make people feel comfortable. So they will talk to me. I've learned, I mean, just in basic, you know, general thinking about it. I've learned what not to bring up in, in the beginning and what to, what to hold off talking about. I have never quite learned time because I need a lot of time and 
you know, sometimes like what we're doing right now, I should have asked you when we started, how long are we going to do this? You know, what, how much time do we have? Because we don't have an infinite amount of time. And am I going to waste a lot of your time by talking about something when I should be talking about something else? You know, when you're dealing with, with a celebrity, I have a tendency I can run off on the mouth. I can get, you know, if I'm excited by seeing somebody, you know, if I'm meeting an artist like Henry Moore for the first time, you know, there's so much I want to just talk about. But I also have a professional obligation to get them to talk. I recently did a podcast with a, a journalist who spent all the time we talk about talking about himself and all the wonderful things he did. And I'm thinking and I didn't interrupt him or call him on it because it's his show. But I thought about it, you know, later and I said, that was a really poor interviewer. And maybe I should have learned to cut in more because, you know, you, you have to learn how to uh, market yourself. I'm not real good at doing that. I feel my job is to get the work done. And then the, the next part, which is the part I'm doing now with this book, is like and I'm sending the book out to people like Tavis Smiley and Charlie Rose and, you know, just trying to get them to uh, take a look at it. Because I think there's so much we can talk about with a book like this. There's so many jumping off points to go with. But, you know, you got to learn how to market. I haven't learned that. <laughs> but I think what I've learned is that I can hold my own with Nobel Prize winners and with some of the greatest writers of our time. And, you know, and I've learned that I'm not a genius, which was a very important thing for me to learn because I was hung up on, on writers like James Joyce. I used to write novels and try to try to, you know, every time I'd finish one, I'd say, OK, this is really good, isn't it? And then I'd put it away for six six weeks, come back to it and say, oh, it's not as good as Joyce. And I put it aside. I wouldn't try to, you know, put it out there. And then finally it came to me that certain people have genius, you know, and they can do what they do because of that. And if you're not born with it and if you're not blessed with it, well, you have to make do with what you have and be happy that you can do it. I've learned to be happy. I've, I've learned to enjoy my life. I've learned that uh, not to have the stress of work overcome me. I've learned that I don't need to make a lot of money, you know, to survive. I was very lucky that I was able to get a house in the Hollywood Hills at a time when, you know, it was, it was affordable. I could never live where I live now with the prices that, that they cost. So I don't know if I'm answering you specifically, you know, because in the book, what I, you know, what I had to do was even though I came up with 120 lessons, I realized that it was just a little too overwhelming to call all of those a lesson. So what I try to do is group them into things. So I basically so a lot of these things were expect the unexpected, you know, just to. So I saw oh, I could I could group 10 different lessons in that. Don't lose control. Very important thing to learn when you're doing an interview, when you're talking to somebody, because people will try to take over the interview in, in many, many different ways. And it's how do you how do you deal with that? I learned that you have to be true to yourself because if you're not true to yourself, there's like a shit detector that everybody that I think has that are very sensitive. And uh, Hemingway used to write about the, you know, about this and, and, and so did uh, Mailer that you can really sort of tell when a person is, is lying to you or being false or, you know, if someone says to you, Oh, did you read uh, Madame Bovary? And you go, Oh yeah, yeah. Well, the next question that person might ask is, well, what'd you think of when he said so-and-so in the middle of the book? And if you haven't read that book and you said you did, you're very embarrassed. So I, I sort of learned, you know, never to BS people to just know who you are and be comfortable with who you are. 
you know, I learned a lot that you always ask people about their childhood because no matter how big they are, they all had childhoods. They all had problems with their parents. They all had a, a, a rotten uncle somewhere. And those always make for interesting stories. If you can find common ground, which was another topic, you know, of the lessons, well, it, it really helps if when you're interviewing Oliver Stone and he says, well, my favorite writers are uh, Mailer and J.P. Donlevy and Joseph Conrad, and these are your own favorite writers. Well, then you have something to talk about. You know, you can go right into it. You know, there's there's with people like Patty Hearst and with Farrah Fawcett, who, you know, who passed away or Montel Williams, who has MS. These are people who survived and they may have died eventually, but but. I, I, they went through a struggle and I, I realized that survival is a bitch, you know, is what I called it. So, you know, you learn, you learn a lot of different things about, about yourself and, and you learn, let's say, even with writers, I say writers rarely disappoint. Why? Because writers have something to say. That's why they write. So they're always more interesting to talk to if they're willing to talk. There are certain people like John Updike, uh, Don DeLillo who don't want to talk or call Mick McCarthy. But if they're willing to talk, you know, Joyce Carol Oates, Norman Mailer, Truman Capote, James Michener, Saul Bellow. They were willing to talk to me, Elmore Leonard. And I could spend weeks with those people because they have a lot to say. Actors don't always have as much to say. And some of them feel insecure about their lives. You know, I saw that immediately with De Niro and Pacino. But they're brilliant actors, you know, but they may not be the most articulate people in the world. Is that a long answer? <laughs> well, the, the good thing is there's so many jumping points from what from what you said. There are so many questions that what you said make me think of. Well, starting with this, you mentioned about taking control of the interview when you're interviewing these celebrities. And some of these people are notorious for not being one to give up control. Right. But you have this thing with you where... You're cordial, you're friendly, you're likable, but also it comes up again and again in the book. Don't don't lose control. Mm -hmm. And I think that applies to being an interviewer, but also being a waiter. There's a lot of things where you are seemingly in a submissive position, but you're not. So how do you do that? How do you both be cordial, likable, friendly, but also be sure to keep control of the conversation. I think it's very important to know what your job is, because when you when you're, you know, going to interview, I mean, the people I wrote about it with the, the control section was with some of the strongest people I've ever met. Streisand, Brando, Pacino, Betty Friedan, Robert De Niro and Vincent Bugliosi and Bob Knight. You can't get a group of people that are stronger and have a, a more, you know, A-type personality than those people. And they all have, they know what they want. Brando wanted only to talk about the Indians. Brando came to my house because he wanted to, me to show him the, the, the transcript, which I didn't do. You know, Streisand wanted me to sign a paper that says that she, she can have final say over the interview and that she will own the tapes and that I have to give them over to her. I didn't do that. I knew what my job was, and my job was to get them to talk about themselves in a way they've never talked about before, to get them to reveal that they've never done before. And I had to go right from the start to let them see that I wasn't there to be a secretary. I wasn't there to be a fan. I wasn't there to, you know, 
enable them, basically, because that's what they are surrounded with. So I have to come from a position of strength. I have to feel that I know more about them than they know about themselves. The only way I know about them is by doing a lot of research and doing my homework and getting prepared. And then, you know, being able to be asserting myself, I mean, when, when I need to be, but also to know how to flatter them, know how to, you know, work myself around them. And that's like what I call being a chameleon. You know, you have to adapt to yourself to the situation you're in. When I was with Bob Knight, I mean, we could spend 25 minutes talking about the interview I did with Bob Knight, the, the coach from Indiana who got fired. And because he was like a, he, he was a, he was a madman in a way, you know, he was one of the greatest college coaches who ever lived. But he bullied people and he, he attacks young people and he put his hand around their necks. He threw chairs into the middle of the, you know, the floor, the the court, the basketball court. He was just very intimidating and he's like six foot five and he weighs like 280 pounds and he's a, he's a scary man. And I'm in the car with him and he's, you know, and I have to ask him some of the most difficult questions about how he, why he was fired and what did he think about the guy who got him fired, etc. He, he tore, tore off at me and he started screaming at me and he told me he's going to kick me out of the car. And, and then, you know, I just had to sort of calm him down and keep make him understand what it was I was doing. So I had to talk straight to him. You know, I mean, I had to say, listen. This is not a game. You know, you've said all these things. You're so much has been written about you. I'm trying to give you a chance to tell your side of the story. That's what this is about. And if you don't see it, if you don't understand that, then there's no sense doing it because I'm not here to, you know, make you a, you know, a greater person or a lesser person. I'm here to just look for, the, you know, what, what is the truth in, in one's life. And so they either respect that or they don't. But the fact that they let me come means that they understand that that might happen, you know, that, you know, and I have to, I have to be up to the part, you know, I have to, to make myself as good as I can be, but I have to convince them that I know what I'm doing. And, you know, with Pacino, I remember it was like, he said, don't turn on the tape recorder when I first met him. And I, because I had it with, took it out right away. And I just said, no, let's, let me turn it on and let's, let's go from there. And he just like hesitated for a moment. And then he said, all right, you know, I guess you know what you're doing. And that's what happened. Well, why did I do that? Because I had already been with Marlon Brando on his island and he wouldn't let me turn on the tape recorder for three days. Now, being on an island with no one else is around in Teotihuacan and Tahiti and, you know, knowing that my tape recorders are sitting there and I'm talking to him in his hut or we're going for walks or we're on the, you know, we take a little boat ride around, you know, the atoll and I can't capture any of his words. I can't, you know, it's driving me crazy. And so I, I ended up figuring out I'm not going to ask him because every time I, he'd tell me a good story, I said, Marlon, why don't you hold that for when the tape is on? And he'd say, oh, I can remember it. Well, I learned that nobody tells a good story the second time. It's like the, oh, you already know the story. So it's not like I'm hearing it for the first time. Then I don't react that way either. So I ended up telling him my life story and he listened. He kept asking me questions about myself. And by the third or fourth day, I finally took the tape recorder. I just took it out and I just turned it on. I didn't ask him. I just, you know, and then he saw it, you know, and, and that's how it happened. But I figured from then on, I don't want to let that happen. I don't want someone else to tell me, don't turn something on. And then I, I'm stuck because then I have to wait for their permission to do it. So, you know, you learn these things by doing it, you know, and so I always have my tape recorders ready. I always try to have them out. You know, with Lucille Ball, she came down the stairs. I had the tape recorders all out, but there was a 
flowers, a vase of flowers in front of us. She sat on one side of the coffee table in the living room. I sat on the other. And somewhere about a half hour in, she said, boy, you must have a really good memory. I said, well, I don't know if I do or not. She says, well, you know, you're not taking notes and you're not, you know, I said, well, I have the tape recorder on. And she didn't see it, right? So she didn't know. But it wasn't that I was hiding it. It was just hidden behind, it was behind the vase. So, you know, it's important to be able to take as much control of a situation as you can. And you know where I learned this? I sold encyclopedias when I was 17, 18 years old. And in this one summer, it was quite a, a, an experience. And I write about this in the, in the introduction of my Art of the Interview book. But I learned that I had to talk to two, to, to a husband and a wife together, not, never one or the other, because, uh, you need to get the couple and they have to sign the papers, et cetera, if they want a free encyclopedia, which is really not free. But so uh, to get their attention, I would be in their living room. How do I change the shape of their living room to make them a little bit uncomfortable? Because I, I've got to feel sort of take control of the room. And what I did was I would say, oh, I'm, I'm like 18 years old. And I said, oh, I have a bad back. Do you mind if I borrow a, a straight back chair from your kitchen? So I would go to their kitchen, take out a chair and put it smack in the middle of their living room and sit there as they sat in their couches and chairs. Well, it altered the shape of their room. You know, they this the, the, they are the kings of their own domain because they've, you know, created the uh, decorated the room the way they wanted it. I changed it slightly and it. It really made them pay attention to me because they said, who's this guy? What's he doing here? Why did he do that? <laughs> and it was like, like, OK, but it was something I learned how to do. And I found it effective. And I found that, you know, when I'm talking to people, I find it's very important to be able to somehow take control of a situation of what, where, what, however you can do it. And, you know, sometimes it's just by observation, by looking at somebody's wall and saying, oh, I see you have a Picasso. Is that real or is that a print? Or looking at a, a television and say, boy, that's a big screen TV you know, and, and just getting into small talk about, you know, the technology, whatever it is. But you just want to get people to feel comfortable with you and then you go into it. Like as when we started to our talk today, you started asking me about. You know, we started talking about different things about your wife or about the situation or about a dinner you went to. And then you said, OK, shall we get into it? We had a little bit of chit chat and then we get into this conversation. That's what you have to do. You mentioned a, a few moments ago about being prepared. And in the world of interviewers, you have far extremes. You have someone like you, Larry Grobel, who likes to research, who likes to read the book the person wrote. Watch the movies that the actor was in. Like Terry Gross, she's notorious for this, reading all of an author's books before she has them on. And then on the other end, there's the other Larry, Larry King, who kind of brags about not doing any research at all. What do you think about that? I mean, Larry King is one of the most famous interviewers of all time, yet he has this, it's kind of, I think, a bizarre thing to be proud of. Well, I, no, look, I, I always hand it to, I, I watch Tavis Smiley. I don't see him using notes too often either, you know. I see certain people have the ability to feel comfortable enough in their own skin to be able to talk to people and just, you know, get a conversation going. And, uh, you know, obviously they've been prepared. They have a staff. So the staff tells them, what this person has done or, you know, what have you. And, you know, maybe they've, you know, I, Larry King probably didn't read many books, but I think uh, Tavis has. But that's just another method. 
I think it's great if you can do it, you know, and if you and if you can keep a, a, an audience's attention. So, you know, I, I, I don't criticize one versus another. It's just a complete it's just what makes you feel comfortable with me. It's like I felt I feel it's my duty to be as prepared as I can because I want to take a I want to take a conversation to a different level. I want to go to a place that I've never read about with this person where they've never gone before. So if I've read everything about them, I know what they have to say about their mother, their father, their, what the books they've read or whatever. But then I want to go, you know, I want to take the last thing they said about their, their mother, you know, oh, my mother and I didn't always get along. I want to go to where, why they didn't get along. And if, the, if, the, if I can find out somewhere else in my research why they didn't get along, I, I, you know, because uh, there was a, you know, Ava Gardner, for example, there was a, a doll that was left out in the rain. She had a doll that she loved. And I wanted to know more about that doll. And she told me about this, you know, this incredible story where she was in, she was like three or four years old and she had a, this doll. She loved it. She slept with it. And she left it outside and by the tree. And then a big storm came and her, you know, she, she went to run out to get her doll and her daddy wouldn't let her go out. You can't go out in this weather. No, the doll, the doll, you know, and she couldn't. And she was just so upset by it. It tra traumatized her. And then when she went out the next day to find it, the doll wasn't there. And, and then she finally found that it had washed away some further, you know, part and the doll, the head was off or it was all damaged. And it was just a very traumatic moment. But then she could, t you know, talk about, the relationship she had with her father and how she felt afterwards and what happened then, you know, those are the kinds of things I look for. But, you know, look, I watched uh, Oprah Winfrey interview Michelle Obama and, you know, there were, she wasn't taking, didn't look like she had notes with her, you know, because I think she was prepared. I think she knows the woman. So, you know, and she, and she, you know, she had the questions that she wanted to ask her and she also had a time limit so she knows that she's got to move move something around you don't know how much has been edited you don't know if she's there was there an extra hour and you got it down or not but you know i just think everybody has their own method of getting people to talk i often remember this one interviewer from playboy his name was ken won't bother with his last name but he once came to me and he called asked me could he come and talk to me and i said sure so he came to my house and he was like he wanted to talk about interviewing and how to, you know, and he had already done three or four interviews for Playboy. And so he was sitting at the table and he was sweating profusely. And his hand, when he, when we shook hands, his hand was really wet and he would take napkins and he'd be wiping his forehead and he, but he was asking me questions, you know, and I felt sorry for him. I felt, you know, this poor guy, he's so nervous, you know, and, and, I, and I'm not someone you should get nervous around, you know, and I tried to calm him down by talking to him and I was opening up to him. And I realized at the end, that was his method of doing it. He got me to talk about things that I hadn't talked about necessarily to other people because I felt for him. You know what I mean? I felt sorry for him. And I said, son of a gun, that's a method. <laughs> and I don't know if he did that purposely. I mean, I think he was genuinely nervous. I don't think you can get your body temperature to change so much. But it, it just struck me as that we're all different. I had, I knew someone in Playboy who only did use three by five cards. So they were notes, you know, talk about subject matter. I write out the questions. I have a woman in my house right now as we're talking downstairs listening to some of my Patty Hearst tapes. She's coming in because uh, she works for a documentarian. They want to do a documentary about her and they want to hear if there's any tapes of anything they can use from me. So I have 20 hours with her and I said, I put it down with the tape recorder and I said, well, you might want to look at the transcript, but the transcript's 600 pages long. 
And then I said, well, oh, look, I noticed the questions that I wrote. And I said, and I, I didn't realize I wrote 985 questions to ask Patty Hearst. Think about that. I mean, maybe if you count up the questions you ask me at the end of this interview, and it could be an hour long, maybe you've asked me 12, you know, 15. I, I wrote, you know, I used to, when I lectured, uh, when I taught at UCLA, I would talk about how I might, I used to ask James Mitch and I had 580 questions. I forgot that I had prepared almost a thousand questions <laughs> to ask this woman. That's a wow. lot, you know, that's a lot of preparation. <laughs> When you think about how celebrities view journalists, you've had the position of interviewing so many of these famous people. How do you think as a whole they look at the person who's interviewing them? Well, that's all different too. I mean, most for the most part they look down on them. You know, they look this is you know, they feel a little bit superior because they're the ones being interviewed. You're the one doing the interview. So, you know, they they have a, you know, the, the balance of powers in, in, on their side. And it's your job to make them understand that you're their equal. Now, that's not easy. You know, when you're sitting there with Marlon Brando or Linus Pauling or Richard Feynman, who, you know, won the Nobel Prize in quantum physics, how do I get him to know that, you know, to, to see that I'm his equal? When intellectually, I obviously am not. But for that hour or two that I'll spend with him, or, you know, depending on what Barbara Streisand, it was nine months, I have to make them feel that they will get something out of talking to me. Otherwise, why would they do it? You know, and besides just publicity or whatever, they've got to feel I'm spending a lot of time with this guy. I want to, I hope I'm getting something out of it. So I, I have stories to tell, you know, that I, I, you know, either about other people that in their profession that they may be interested in hearing or about my own life because I've had a very, kind of adventurous life, you know, having lived in Africa for three years, having traveled around the world, having, you know, spent time in Colombia and South America. I can entertain. I used to entertain Dolly Parton with my stories, uh, the ghost story. She loves ghost stories and she believes in ghosts. So I used to tell her about the ghost stories I knew from Ghana and, and West Africa. And so, you know, there's a way you've got to be able to pique their interest, which is why I always say, to people to read, you know, to experience, to travel, to join the Peace Corps or volunteer for something, because the more experience you have, the more interesting you will become. And people will be, you know, people who are interested to begin with, like a John Houston, who, you know, his whole life was to stay interested, you know, you know, he'll be willing to listen to what you have to say. For instance, I once with John Houston, uh, we were talking about something and I said I had written a novel, you know, and I put it aside for a while. And he just like picked up on it immediately. He says, you've written a novel? I said, yeah, but, you know, I'm not sure about it. He says, I'd like to read it. <laughs> John, I, I couldn't believe it. Right? I said, John Houston wants to read my novel. And I go, I said, I don't know. He says, I want you to send it to me immediately when you get home. And I had a promise I would. So I did. And sure enough, he read the novel, called me up about it. And his great remark about it, he says, I read your novel, Larry, and, and I found it very, very interesting. But, but I just have to – I have one, one criticism for you. I said, well, he says, in your novel, you have a, a character that is uh, uh, shaking his head yes. He says, Larry, you don't shake your head yes. You nod. And that was it. <laughs> and it's, I've got to go now. And that was it. And I said, what a – 
What a great conversation. <laughs> what a great comment, right? You don't shake it. Yes, you nod. And he's right. And, you know, but he picked up on it. And I knew he actually read the damn thing, you know? So I got off on a tangent there. But but I I, I think you were asking me about how does a, a star relate to you and how do they see you? They see you differently. They see, you know, they don't see you that nicely in the beginning, you know, because the, you're there to take up their time. You're there to ask them questions that maybe make them uncomfortable. They don't know what you're going to write about them. They're, they're wary of you. They're a little leery. They don't know exactly what's going to, you know, be. So they're looking at you and they're eyeing you. And that's why I feel you got to make them very comfortable right from the beginning. You got to show them that you're not out to get them. You know, it's not it's not like you're playing gotcha with these people. That's for other journalists to do. You're there to do a more serious interview because you're going to take them seriously. And I appreciated like when Shelley Winters, I did a cable interview with Shelley Winters and she said on camera, she said, you know, I'm really glad this interview is going the way it's going, because most of the time when I do television, you know, I'm always the bimbo and they ask me these questions and then I end up being this sexy bimbo thing. And I don't like that. I don't like who that is. I, I'd rather be who I am. And so that was nice, you know, to be able to see someone who try, trying to be who they really are. Our special guest is Lawrence Grobel, Larry to friends. He's the author of You Talking to Me, Lessons I Learned Along the Celebrity Trail. This brings me to an interesting point in the book. Something that really piqued my interest was the section about Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn and the professional and personal relationship you had with them. I was hoping you could tell us, tell the listeners about that and what you learned from them. I thought it was very interesting. That one, you know, it's it's always been a bit painful in a certain way, the Goldie Hawn, because the lesson I call it is that they're not your friends. And the reason I say that was is because Goldie and I and Kurt, to a lesser extent, really were friends, you know, for a, for a quite a long time. I went to Old Snowmass in uh, near Aspen, Colorado, to first interview Goldie Hawn around 1984 or whatever it was. We got along. We just we, there was something about the two of us that clicked, and and uh, we we would take nice walks. We would we would get into great conversations. She loved the fact that my wife was Japanese and and that we were into certain things that she was into. Anyway, so, and Kurt, Kurt was always interesting to me because he was a very strong Republican. He was a kind of a conservative thinking man who uh, had opposite views than I did. And, you know, as we got to know, we'd know them over the years, it would always be, a, we'd have dinners and Goldie would say, let's not talk about religion or politics. And of course, that's the two things I would bring up because I knew it would get Kurt going, you know, and it would be interesting. But getting back to the beginning, when we, we, re we really got along well, and then the interview came out in Playboy, and she was on the cover, and, and she liked it, you know, and then we decided to just meet every four months or so to, to have dinner. And it would either be at our house or at their house or, or at a restaurant. And it was always, we took turns. So if, if they paid for one dinner, it would be my turn the next time, you know. So it was like always, it was a very nice kind of relationship. And then one time Goldie said, you know, that they weren't going to be, uh, they were going to be up in one of their other houses. They have them all over the place. And why didn't I take my kids, because they were young then, and to stay in their Malibu house. They had a house on the beach. 
And I thought that was very nice of her. So we went for the weekend and we, you know, and uh, we stayed, we stayed there. When they went away to, to Europe, they came back from a trip and Kurt, they had a whole bunch of pictures they wanted to show us. And they said, Oh, and here's, and they're showing us these pictures of Goldie laying naked on the yacht, you know, in, uh, in the sun in the Mediterranean. And I'm going, this is pretty interesting that they're even showing us these pictures, you know, but it's very intimate. You know, you don't expect to see somebody showing you a picture, you know, like that. So I thought, you know, that we were close. We were close enough for them to feel comfortable doing that. I used to talk to Goldie about because I played paddle tennis. I used to play with Farrah Fawcett. I played with Al Pacino. So she wanted to get, you know, bring them over to her house to play. So they had a tennis court. They were, so they can, they were going to convert it. And I think they actually did into a paddle tennis court. You know, they made it a little smaller. But we, you know, before we got to play it, I was asked by Entertainment Weekly. I had done a, a cover story for them early on when the magazine was just starting out on Al Pacino. So then they wanted me to do a cover story on Kurt Russell. He was making the movie Backdraft. So I said, all right. So I talked to Kurt. I had never written about Kurt before. So Kurt said, great, let's go up in my airplane and we'll fly up to uh, San Luis Obispo. We'll have a lunch up there in Pismo Beach or something. And then we'll, we'll, you know, we'll come down. So I meet him at the air, airport in, near Santa, in Santa Monica area. We get in the plane. It's just the two of us. He it starts flying. He says to me, take over the controls. I said, I don't know how to fly a plane. Oh, just push this forward. Just push this back. So now I'm flying the plane and I'm scared and I'm nervous because I've never done this before. And we're heading towards a mountain and uh, he's laughing and finally takes control. We get to where we're going. We land. We eat. We we had a very nice time. I write about this article. I put it in the I give it to, to Entertainment Weekly, which is part of Time, Inc., uh, they, you know, send me back the galley of the article. I go over it. I make whatever corrections I want to make, give it back to them. And then the article comes out the next week and it's on the cover and it looks like it's a nice article, except in the second paragraph, it said something like Kurt really needed this movie because he's like a B actor trying to become an A actor. He's a second tier actor trying to become a, you know, major actor or something like that. It was really a negative, nasty comment. Anyway, I didn't write it. I didn't write the entire paragraph. And I was upset by that. And in fact, I have never written for Entertainment Weekly since then. Uh, and that was, you know, upsetting because they paid well. But I just, I couldn't believe it. It happened to me once with Rolling Stone with Al Pacino too. So I have experienced it. But Pacino, when that happened, called me up and said, you're not going to like the article. I said, what are you talking about? I read it. I saw the galleys. He said, no, nah, I don't know. It just doesn't seem very good. So I read what they wrote and I saw that they had taken out maybe a thousand words. They, 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 and I called them up. I said, what happened? And they said, oh, well, we lost some advertising. So we had to cut some articles. So we just started cutting. I said, well, you can't cut like that. You took out the whole life of the article. That one, I didn't like it, but it wasn't like, bad it was just dull I, that's almost worse right so but with so i've experienced this that it happens sometimes that editors at the last minute will cut your work you got to learn to live with it you know it's just people don't know about that but it's the way it works so this happened here where, where they added a paragraph i didn't write i figured well he's going to be pissed off he'll call me up and we'll you know i'll explain it and uh, we'll have it out you know i never heard from him never heard from goldie nothing so then i it was our turn to have dinner, and I called Goldie, and she didn't answer me. Left a message. I called the following week, no, didn't answer me again. So I wrote her a note. I said, "Go, you know," and didn't hear back. 
So I said, oh, she's mad at me or she's upset with me. I don't know why exactly. And of course, I thought, well, maybe it's the article. But I said, no, that's too petty because we know each other too long. And if, you know, if they're angry about that one paragraph, they'll they'll call me on it and I'll explain it. Or at least I'm trying to call them and they're not answering. So that was it, though. I, I never heard back from them. And then about, oh, I don't know, a year later. I was with Al Pacino, who I was very close with, and you know he knew I knew them pretty well and all. And I hadn't told him that I hadn't seen them for a while. And anyway, he was he had never met them. And then he was at a like an Oscar party or a Golden Globe party or something, and he met them and he liked them. And he came back and he said, "Hey, I met your friends, Goldie and Kurt. They yeah, were really nice." I said, "Well, I don't know if they're my friends really." He said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, I said I don't know, but uh, for some reason they're not talking to me." You don't know? He says, "You got to know." I said, well, I don't really know. I suspect something, but I don't know for sure that I can say it. So he goes, all right, I want you to write a letter to Goldie today. I want you to say in the first line that I told you that you should write this letter because, you know, and I, he says, you promise me you'll do that? I said, all right, I'll do it. So I came home. I wrote Goldie. I said, Goldie, Al Pacino just told me he met you and I told him that we hadn't been talking and he insisted that I write you another time because I have to find out why. <laughs> this is how I basically wrote this letter. And I did. So I get back a letter from Goldie saying, you know, the problem is when, when that article you wrote about Kurt came out, I read that article and I didn't recognize Kurt. And if I didn't, if I don't know who you're writing about, then I just had to side with him and I just, you know, there was just something about it. So, okay, now I know why. I go to my files and I get the article I wrote. It was about 17 pages long. And then I get the magazine and I make a Xerox copy of the article because I knew they would never have kept the article. And I send this to Goldie. I sent her the article with my, my article, what I wrote. And I said, Goldie, I said, here's what I wrote. Here's what they published. You take a look at it and you tell me if you can recognize Kurt and what I wrote. I said, I had nothing, I can't help what, what happened there, but you know, she reads it. Anyway, I get another letter back saying that she's down in her knees and apology and that she says, that's a beautiful article that you wrote. I'm so sorry that we didn't, you know, get in touch with you about it. And now I see what you did. Can you please, can you come for dinner at our house? Can we please? So I agreed to do that. So my wife and I are driving to Goldie's house and Kurt. <laughs> and she says, my wife says, are you going to bring up, you know, this, this situation? I said, well, of course, we're going to have to talk about it. You know, I can't hide what happened, but we'll, you know, let's, we'll do it in, in due time. So when we get there, there is Kate Hudson, right? And, and Oliver and the other boy, the, uh, the younger boy. Name is slipping my mind in a moment. But anyway, the three kids were there and they were still young. They were, you know, Kate wasn't yet an actress. So we're sitting around the table and we're talking and Kurt brings it up. He says, you know, I'm really sorry. He's not so apologize. And I said, Kurt, why don't we wait? Let's talk about this after dinner, you know, in the living room. Uh, so let's have a just nice dinner now without getting into it. So, okay, we did. We had a nice dinner. And then afterwards we get in. And I, and I said to them, you know, this is like a Guy de Maupassant story. I said, it's like, you know, the necklace where you, you know, you replace a, 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 a fake necklace with a real one. You take your whole life and you, because you didn't understand what really happened. You didn't, you know, and I said, this is, this is the same situation. And I said, and what upsets me about the whole thing is that you never called me, that you never answered my calls that here, you know, I mean, it, to even say what, what happened? Why did I do something like this? Or how did this happen? We never got to that. 
And, um, and it's, a, you know, to me, a friend would do that. You know, I, that's what I would expect from, you know, a friend. I've had so many arguments with friends, you know, that, well, mis, misunderstandings. Well, you talk it out. I grew up with that with my sister. You know, we always had problems. So anyway, they, they, they was, okay, well, you know, let, we'll get together again. Let's see when we hugged, we kissed, goodbye. And I knew when I walked out, I said, no, it's, it's not the same. It'll never be the same. And it hasn't been, you know, we really don't see them. Uh, I ran into Goldie at CAA, uh, in Beverly Hills, uh, about a year or two later. And, you know, we hugged, it was on the street. Everything seemed nice, but you know, it's, we're not, we're not staying in their houses anymore. We're not sharing dinners anymore. And then I said, you know, that's what I realized, you know, these, no matter how close you get to some people, they really aren't necessarily your friends. <laughs> and, and that's my story with Goldie and Kurt. I do like them. I do appreciate them, but I just feel it's, it's not real. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a good story though. It tells us a lot about their relationship. Our special guest is Lawrence Grobel, author, interviewer, journalist. One time I was interviewing a famous California radio personality, now retired, now a publicist and since retired from that, Elliot Mintz. And he was telling me about that relationship, and he was saying, you do an interview with someone, they promote their album, movie, book, fill in the blank, and then there's a very, very friendly discourse. Sometimes you go to eat, you whatever and then they kind of disappear and then suddenly they have another book out they have another album another tour another movie etc showing and suddenly your phone is ringing again (laughs) have you found this to be the case well you know it happens both ways when i did pacino we really, we spent months, you know, doing this Playboy interview and I was, I stayed in New York for a long time and we really got into it every day. We were together. We, he was doing the movie cruising at the time and, you know, at night we would talk and, and he never had done an interview before. This is like his first real interview. And finally I, I'm back to New York, uh, to LA and I'm working on it. And we, we talked on the phone all the time. We were adding stuff to, you know, to, to conversations. And then finally, you know, and I, I brought it to, I, I finally sent it into Playboy. It was done. And he, he starts saying, is this it? This is it? You mean all this time we spent together and now you, now I'm not going to see you. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. You know, he was, it was the opposite, right? I mean, it was like he had been through like therapy with me, you know, it didn't cost him anything because <laughs> he's been in therapy all his life. So. You know, I said, well, no, I said, I'll, I'd be happy to keep talking to you. I said, but I think you should read the article when it comes out first and see if you approve because you may not like it. And then you don't want to talk to me. Anyway, he liked it, obviously, and we continued to talk for 30 years. But, you know, so it happens both ways, you know. It happened with Dolly Parton, you know, where she just would call me every once in a while. And just, you know, you just don't know how that happens. But it's true. I mean, my I've gotten very close with some of the people. Uh, look, I'm still close with Elliot Gould, for instance. My, on one of my very first interviews, Elliot and I, you know, he's, he's, he, he knows my kids. He's, he, he's supportive. He can we talk on the phone. There was a, I was the guest of honor at a dinner for a, a couple of weeks, uh, months ago. Elliot came, you know, so did Priscilla Presley and I've never met her. That was kind of strange, but you know, I mean, there are certain people that you sort of stay in touch with, certain people that you think you're close with. 
And, you know, you're not. Chris Walken is an interesting example because I felt very close with Chris Walken when we when I got to know him. And I sent him a book and he liked the book and sent me another book back. And, you know, but it's just that uh, and I feel I can call. I can see him anytime I want when I go to New York. You know, it'd be nice to get together. But we're not, you know, telephone buddies or anything like that. And And sometimes, you know, I think about, you know, celebrity friendships or, you know, are can be exhausting because they can, you know, they, they can be, they can take up a lot of your time, you know, you know, and so uh, you have to sort of pick and choose the people you want to be close with as well. I don't want to be part of somebody's entourage, you know, I don't want to be just somebody hanging out with somebody with other people there. That's not who I am. Like with Pacino, we got, you know, we got to play cards. So I thought we had a card game. We used to play at my house. George Hamilton would come, Harry Dean Stanton, Elliot Gould, you know, it would be uh, Fisher Stevens, you know, and, and Al, we, we, you know, and we would, we would play cards and, and I'd serve food, be good. Then Al started doing it at his house and then we started doing it at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. It was just like fun to do, you know, it was just like easy. It wasn't like I was there as a reporter writing about it. I wasn't going to do that kind of thing, but you, you sort of pick and choose and you never know how, how, someone's going to react to you. Warren Beatty and I got along very well to the point where he invited me to have dinner with him and Michelle Phillips at the time. So I did. But then we had one last conversation about, and I had had asked him about his tax situation because I had heard that he owed money. And uh, that he said, oh, Larry, I got to go. I don't have a call. Let me call you back. And I never heard from him again. That's where my lesson was there. Don't ask about money <laughs> until the end. <laughs> so you never know with those things. A lot of that has to do, Paul, with personalities. You know, if your personality clicks, if you happen to, Barbara and I both came from Brooklyn. So the, Al was from the Bronx. You know, if, you, if you're from certain areas, you know what it was like growing up. You sort of know these things. It's not exotic to you, you know, it's and it's different. Steve Martin, you know, he sort of came from Anaheim, you know, and, and even though I think Steve is a genius, I think he's brilliant. You know, when you get into an interview situation with him, it's very cut and dry. You know, he's not trying to be funny. He's not trying to, you know, I mean, he's he's a very serious man, you know, and that can be very hard when you try to interview someone who at the time I was interviewing was a comedian, you know, and then you want to get something funny out of him. So you just don't know with certain people. You've mentioned Al Pacino a lot and you have the book Conversations with Al Pacino. Would it be safe to say that you had kind of a bromance with him? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that, that Al and I were, were very much like brothers. He was like my older brother. I remember when he first came to my house, my wife, she was enamored by him because he was, you know, so handsome as a, you know, young man and all that stuff. And, you know, she'd seen him from the movies. And being a Japanese woman, you know, she, she sort of has her own way of doing things. But I'll never forget, we were sitting in my office, the door was closed, and she sort of knocked on the door. And she had made some tea. And so she, she brings it on a tray, you know, she, and she sort of like, her head is down, you know, and she brings the tea and she looks up and smiles and he smiles at her and she backs out and she goes and she closes the door. And Al looks at me and goes, what was that? <laughs> it was so funny, you know, because, you know, she was so respectful. But then you know, she got to know him, and it was like, eh, he's just Al Pacino. <laughs> you know, it was like it wasn't it wasn't anything uh, you know to, to be so subservient to. But you know, it's uh, he was very good with my kids. You know, he was uh, we had we had a lot of very interesting times, and we had a lot of uh, falling outs as well. Uh, you know, because 
you know, how do you, how do you separate the, a friendship that is close? You call it a bromance. I say it's like a brother. But, you know, when you have someone like that, I used to tell editors like Rolling Stone. I did a piece on Al. I think I did two pieces on Al. I told them, I said, look, if, if I write about him, you have to understand that he's a friend. And so I'm going to come from a different perspective. I'm not going to give you dirt and gossip that you might want, but you won't get anyway because you can't get it out of him. But I will give you an insight into him that you will never see in any other place. And that's what I did. And I did that in Playboy as well. Not the first one. The first one was before we became friends, really. But I did another long profile on him once. It was really interesting because – you know, we were talking, we got into this whole thing. How, do you trust me? Yeah, I trust you. Do you trust me with your life? I don't know. Do you trust me with your life? You know, it was like that kind of thing. When does a journalist and a, and a, you know, an actor talk about trusting each other with his one's life? And, uh, he once asked me, would I, would I, if he, if he was enabled, would I kill him? I said, what do you mean? He says, would you, would you put a gun over my head, you know, over a pillow and just shoot me? I said, no, I don't think I'd want to do that. He says, what if I, I paid you a lot? I said, I, it's not, I don't want the money, Alice. <laughs> I don't want to go to jail over it. <laughs> it's like a little bit difficult. But those kinds of conversations, those are crazy conversations in a way, right? But it's like, this is what was, we would, we would get into. And I, then I would write about that. But sometimes he didn't want me to write about something. But the last book I did was called, I want you in my movie. And he didn't want me to publish that book until the movie came out. Well, that was 2006. I started writing it. We started doing this movie in 2009 or 10. I had a, a book offer to, for the book. I told him about it. He said, don't do it. I said, okay. So I pulled the book offer and then I waited and he still didn't put the movie out. Wild Salome, it's called. It's, it's available, I think, on DVD. It never came out. And I, and I have this great manuscript that, that, so I put it out myself. He wasn't happy with that, but. Now look, you have to you have to live your life as an artist the, as much as you can. You know, you can't let other people determine your life and, and your art, and that's always a difficulty. It's always a struggle, especially with celebrity relationships. Our special guest is Lawrence Grobel, author of "You Talking to Me: Lessons I Learned Along the Celebrity Trail." One of the things you touch on in this book is publicists the gatekeepers to right. the stars. What do you think about publicists? It's their job. They have to do what they do. So, you know, a publicist is there either to protect their star from a journalist or to promote their star to a journalist. And it just depends on where in the pecking order that star is. And so you have, you know, Frank Sinatra was totally, you know, he had Lee Salter's, Barbara Streisand also had Lee Salters. His job basically was a journalist would call and he say, I'll get back to you. You know, well, I'll get back to you. And, you know, and never give you the, never get you to them because they didn't want to talk to anybody. So that's, that was the, you know, the publicist's job. You may have hated the publicist about it, but what could he do? That's, you know, he would, he would bring it up to the star. The star would say no, and that would be that. On the other hand, you'd get people calling you saying, James Franco wants to talk to you. Now, that would have been early on. Now he's a bigger star. It'd be different. But, you know, Chris O'Donnell, who I did, you know, there were a number of stars who were just coming up when I when I talked to them. And they were the publishers would call the editor of the magazines and say, how about him? How about how about her? And then they'd get in touch with me if they wanted it. So it's, it's a two way street with publicists. But I found that 
many of the publicists are nice and decent, and I like them. There are a few, though, that, who, who handle people like uh, Sharon Stone or uh, Cher or whatever who could be really, really nasty and difficult. Halle Berry, you know, she had a couple of different publicists, but, you know, they start telling you what you can do and what you can't do. And they did with Jake Gyllenhaal, I write about the Jake Gyllenhaal one in, in the book. I forget who was the other publicist I, I, I was talking about, but, uh, oh, I think it was um, Meryl Streep trying to get to them. You know, they, they become difficult because they start telling you when you you know you get there you only have 20 minutes with them or you can only do this or you don't bring up this don't talk about that and you know uh, with Jody Foster I remember Pat Kingsley's people you know told me you can't talk about sex and you can't talk about uh, Hinkley you know John Hinkley to her and if I uh, and if I didn't agree they weren't going to produce Jody Foster so I would have to say okay I won't talk about that but then it's my job to try to figure out some way some way to t- to get her to talk about it without me asking about it. You know what I mean? It was like the, that. That's a different kind of challenge. So publicists can be, you know, a real. It's the power of the publicist changed over the years. It wasn't like that early on. It, it became more difficult as the stars got bigger, as the outlets grew, and so now if you wanted to get two hours with a star, that's really difficult to do because publicists won't get let let you have it. My days when I was doing the things in the seventies in the eighties, nineties and early two thousands, I would talk for hours with these people. I would I, I not the publicists with the with the star. You know, once the publicist gave me the in, it was my job then to convince the hour conversation to turn into two or three days. That was what I had to do. And so and then publicists would start disliking me because they saw that I was running around them. Pat Kingsley really disliked me for a long time because I got to know Pacino so well that, you know, I had his phone number. We talked. I said to him, oh, Rolling Stone wants to do something or Premium wants to do something. or And he would say, OK, let's do it. And so we never even went through her. And she got mad. She says, don't you think you can go through me because you know him? Well, where do you try to get to any of my other people? She would threaten. Right. And I said, well, what can I do? You know, all I'm trying to do is make a living, <laughs> live my life, make a living, be a decent guy and put my kids through college. So I did that. Do you think that that's good advice that if you have the ability to bypass the publicist, you should? Yes. <laughs> if you can, of course. What do you need? You know, let the, if you can get to the star. I mean, look, it, it, it has... One time I tried to get around uh, Lee Soltis because of Frank Sinatra. I was trying to get to Sinatra, and he couldn't, couldn't get through him. So I got in touch with – I forgot the name. His, he had a very powerful lawyer. So I, I, got, I wrote to his lawyer, and I said, look, I've been trying to get to Frank Sinatra, and uh, just not having much luck, and Playboy wants to do him, blah, blah, blah. Well, two days later, I get a call from Lee Soltis, and he says, you think you can go around me and go to his lawyer to get to Sinatra? Good luck with that, he goes, and he hangs up on me. <laughs> I never did get to Sinatra. So, you know, it's it's tricky. I think it's nice to, to, to try to build a relationship with publicists if you can and be nice to them. You know, you should be nice to everybody. But if you have an access that, you, that, that can get you around the publicist, use it. On that note, there are certain celebrities who are very, very hard to get. For example, it would be hard to get an interview, I imagine, with Jack Nicholson. Right. And then there are people who are just, they're notorious. It's a part of their personality that they're elusive. Bob Dylan, for example. Yep. Who have you always wanted to interview, but you could never get to? 
Well, you just named him, Bob Dylan. <laughs> Bob Dylan. I did, I've interviewed Jack Nicholson, though. That was for a book that Marlo Thomas was doing about people who influenced, what teachers influenced uh, these people. And, and Nicholson was one of the people I talked to. See, I did, I did, what's his name? Ray, 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 what's his name? Comedian. Did the, everybody loves Raymond. Ray Romano. Ray Romano, I did. I did Ellen DeGeneres. I did Barry Diller. Uh, but Nicholson was the highlight of that. But that was, you know, through that book. Dylan is the one that I would love to talk to. Yeah. The one I would really love to talk to. If the ghost of Marilyn Monroe could come to my house, I would like to talk to her. She really fascinates me. But, you know, I used to think Greta Garbo. I used to, I, the Pope, Pope is always someone you'd want to talk to, especially this Pope. This is a nice Pope, Pope Francis. So it would be nice to do him. To tell you the truth, if, if he wouldn't walk out or kick me out, I would do, I'd like to do Donald Trump because I think uh, no journalist has really nailed this guy yet, and I would love to try, you know, but I'd like to do it in a friendly way. But, yeah, Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan, I mean, can you imagine getting the Nobel Prize and saying, I'm too busy to come to pick it up, so I'll send Patty Smith to go there? I mean, I just, I can't believe that, right? That's I love him. I love the guy. I listen to Dylan whenever we take any trips. If we're going down to Mexico, we're going up to see my daughter in the San Francisco area. You know, anytime we're driving, four or five Dylan tapes go right into the, you know, and we just listen to him all the time. Tom Waits. Tom Waits is another guy I really would love to talk to. I imagine he would be easier to get to than Dylan in a way, but those are two. And, and as writers go, I always wanted to do John Updike, but, you know, he's since passed. And Philip Roth. Philip Roth would be the probably the one writer I'd love to talk to more than any other writer. Don DeLillo and Cormac McCarthy would be behind that, but but you know I think Roth is really the great greatest living writer who's no longer writing now. Stop writing, but I mean he's a, he's a brilliant writer. So there are, there are some people in, in all different fields. You know, I could probably come up with a scientist or a, a doctor. You know that would be interesting to talk to about what's going on. I think I think. In technology, you know, I guess uh, Zuckerberg would be interesting or uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, from Amazon would be interesting, especially since I publish so many books on Amazon and all. I mean, are they taking over the world? The head of China would be interesting. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of people. I'd like to talk to the head of ISIS, you know, I mean, the, the head guy, right? But I, of course, I'd be very wary of doing that. But, you know, if you can, if you were in, in a perfect world, be able to sit in a situation and actually be able to interview someone like that for an hour or two. Yeah, it would be pretty interesting. What would you ask Bob Dylan? <laughs> well, Bob Dylan would take, I would really do a lot of research before I do a Dylan because I think Bob Dylan's in his songs, you know, I mean, when he talked circled by the circus sands, for instance, you know, in Mr. Tambourine Man, Bob Dylan had a lot of, I think his early life, dealt with circuses and, and freak shows because, you know, there, there's always these things going on in, in, in his stuff. And I suspect that it would be very interesting to get into his early life in Hibbing in, in Minnesota. You know, I, I would read Chronicles, his first book. You know, I have it sitting by my bed, but I haven't read it yet. You know, I would just I would like to take a, a Dylan conversation to, to be like a, a normal conversation with somebody. You know, what does Bob Dylan think about? 
just, you know, anything about the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series, Donald Trump becoming president. What, you know, what, you know, what, what was his relationship with Obama? You know, just, just like, you know, almost like normal things that people talk about. I'd like to hear what Dylan has to say about everything. As I, I think it would really be fascinating. So I, I wouldn't be trying to write, you know, find trick questions with him. I don't think I would try to get try to find the deeper messages in in his words in his writings and his lyrics because i think uh, you know what he what he's saying and what he wrote you know is what he is what it is you know you don't have to go further than that it's like trying to decipher somebody's poem but he's such a voice of the generation i mean you know allen ginsberg you know even you know while he was still alive called him the you know the uh, poet laureate basically of america so I, I think I think it would really just be I don't know a thrill to just be with him. But I, I when I was in Poland, I they had an exhibit in a town called Turin, and it was Dylan's paintings. And he also had he makes gates. You know he he's, he he does these giant gates that he does. You know uh, for people, or I don't know how many people. But every single painting there, I talked to the guy who represented him, sold for a million dollars. And that's, and there's, there, he has, there's a back order of like, you know, hundreds of people are waiting for a Dylan painting. And it could be just a painting of a train or a painting of a town or a painting of a road, you know, and, you know, that he did. I got the catalog from it, you know, I was really happy to see it. And it was just like a real eye opening, you know, cause he's not, he's not just, uh, uh, sitting, uh, sitting there singing a song and then disappearing, you know, he's painting, he's making these gates, he's, I don't know how much he actually physically right does the gates or does he design them and have somebody else, you know, building them? I don't know, but I would, I would talk to him about art culture. It'd be interesting. So in general, or for any of these people you'd like to interview from Donald Trump, the Pope to Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. is there a certain environment that you feel is conducive that you, Larry Grobel, you want to be in this situation when interviewing them? this person yeah quiet i want quiet i don't want to be in a restaurant i don't want to hear knives and forks clacking when and making my tape recorder you know go crazy i don't want people coming up to them just for an autograph you know so if you're in any kind of public place it's terrible you know it's just it's annoying and people are rude people interrupt they see somebody it's their chance i could be in a very deep conversation with anybody it's happened to me hundreds of times and just as we're getting into something very interesting, somebody comes up and just starts talking, you know, a cocktail party, this happens or anything. And I go, oh, you know, and, and it's so trivial what they have to say. Oh, I love you so much. You know, like that kind of stuff. I've been that, you know, Al Pacino and I have gone to Beverly Wilshire Hotel where we, we where we, you know, we'll just have tea because there's a piano player that's nice. So we listen, we sit there and drink tea and, you know, for and a woman will come up to him and just, start, you know, salivating and just wanting to hold his hand. And he's nice for a while. But after a while, and I've seen that with Goldie Hawn and when we used to go out and the Japanese restaurant, somebody would come up to her and say, you know, bend down to her and say, you know, it's a beautiful night out. There's a moon tonight. We should go sailing. And she would say, oh, that would be great. And I'm going, who is this guy? She hasn't introduced us, right? And then he'd walk away and I said, who was that? And she says, I have no idea. But she handled it so well, you know, but, but, you know, so people interrupt. I, I, you know, that's, that's not fun when you're trying to have a decent conversation. So I would prefer to do it in either my house or in their house where they're comfortable, but that the phones are off and, and the there's no radio going on and it's just a quiet, nice situation 
we can have a drink. It could be water, it could be tea, coffee, it could be alcohol, whatever they like, and just feel comfortable. That, to me, is the, the ideal way to do an interview. What do you think it is that drives these people who are famous? I don't know because I'm not famous. I, I really don't have an answer to that. I think it's, you know, everybody has an ambition. Fame is like, you know, when you look at the Kardashians, you look at Jaja Gabor, you know, these are people who are famous for being famous, right? I mean, you know, and yet they make, you know, I mean, the Kardashians, when I read about, if they, if they put my book on their Twitter, it would cost me like $50,000 to do that, right? And they'll reach X millions of people about it. Now, I don't know if anybody reads who, who who responds to them, but, you know, it's like, that's incredible to me. You know, it's like, well, you know, I don't understand it. I think the real artists are not after fame. You know, they're after, they, they want to put their talent out as best they can. And they want, you know, to, to do, the, do the medium that they're in justice. I, you know, I don't think James Joyce was after fame. I don't think Dostoevsky was after fame. You know, I think, you know, you have a burning desire to write. James Joyce couldn't even see at the end of his life, right? He, he had so many eye operations, and even he started writing in crayon, you know, in big letters. You know, he wasn't doing that so somebody could then sell it, you know, and on eBay years later. Um, it was just that, you know, you have this desire. Why is jo Joyce Carol Oates writing all the time? You know, I mean, it's just like, you know, she's certainly written enough books. She certainly doesn't need to write anymore. She's 77 or 8 years old, but she can't stop herself. Do you know how many tweets Joyce Carol Oates, let me ask you that. How many tweets do you think Joyce Carol Oates has tweeted? Now, I don't know how long she's been tweeting. Maybe 10 years, maybe less. How many, what would you say, the number? I'm going to guess. I have no idea. So 100,000. Wow, that's even more than she did. But she's got 38,000 tweets. So 38,000. Now you think about it. If you tweet one tweet a day for 10 years, that's uh, 3,600, right? Wait, there's 365 times 10, 36,000, right? 36,000. She's got 38,000. So she's, you know, it's like, how do you do that? You know, I think I've, I tweet once in a while, but very rarely. Maybe I've done 250 tweets, <laughs> you know, over the years. I, you know, I don't know how many Donald Trump has done, but 38,000. And if you go to her thing, I bet you it's 39 or 40,000 by now. And I just noticed it last week. <laughs> but people who are like that are very, very focused, narrowly focused on what they do. And what she does is right. That's who she is, and that's what's in her mind, and so it comes out. She's not looking for fame. She she's become famous in her you know in in her world, but I don't think she was looking for it. I don't think that's as a matter of fact. She's written under different names to try to get away from that fame because she doesn't want to be judged by every time you write about her. It's this is Joyce Carol Oates' one hundred ninetieth book. You know, well that's not what she wants. She wants to be taken seriously for for the words. So I don't know what, you know, people, people who want fame are shallow, more shallow than people who want to nurture their talents and who are artists. How's that? Hmm. Was there anything early on in your life that you feel like from your childhood most kind of uh, guided you in the direction of being an interviewer? No. Well, I, when I was 10 years old or 11 years old, there was a house in Jericho, Long Island. That was uh, Jericho, Long Island used to be like a giant potato farm, apparently. And um, 
it goes back to the Revolutionary War. There's the Millerage in there that that was there during the you know built during the Revolutionary War, and so it's pretty it's pretty you know historic in the area. And there was this giant house there, and I heard that it was going to be torn down, and and a Safeway or a Wallbounds or something was going to be put up there. And I was real curious about the house, so I. I decided I didn't tell my mother about this or any of my friends. I just took a pad and a pencil. I knocked on this door. An old lady answered the door, and I said, "I'm a reporter for the Jericho newspaper in my school. I was I was in the fifth grade, I think, <laughs> maybe the sixth grade." And I said, uh, "And I'm here to, to ask you about your house." And come on in, she said. Come on in. So she took me in. She gave me milk and cookies. She showed me around the house. She showed me the mirrors. She showed me. It was like amazing, you know. And I, I acted like I was writing something, but I never wrote anything. I was just curious, and I used interviewer, right? I didn't know at the time what interviewer was, but I used that to get in. So, so I guess it, it's been a part of my DNA since I was a very little kid. But I never thought about being an interviewer. I always just wanted to be a, a fiction writer. You know, I just wanted to write novels. And it just stumbled into it. Newsday was the one, the editor of Newsday, when I was writing for Long Island Magazine, I was doing all these crazy articles, jumping from airplanes and going to the demolition derby and watching people crash cars and going to Roosevelt Raceway and people who gave, who, who collected fish. I mean, I wrote articles about all sorts of things. And then when I moved out to Los Angeles, it was to, it was really to, stop my journalism and just get into the my books and the editor called me up and said uh we figured out a way to get off long island for these articles we want to do interviews with household names i said oh okay who do you want to do and they said may west i said oh okay Is she alive okay and then uh, you you find her and i found her and that was it i i did may west and then i did linus pauling and then i did gabe kaplan and uh it just they went on from there, Jane Fonda and Lucille Ball. And it's a, it was interesting. And as I was doing all these interviews, Ray Bradbury was one. I started thinking, what would it be like to really talk to somebody in depth rather than just for an hour or two? That's how the Playboy interview came into my mind. And I said, OK, let me try that. So I managed to get, you know, the Streisand interview and Playboy and then the and Henry Winkler and Dolly Parton. And then it became they saw that I could do this. So they gave me the Brando assignment. And then it just that was it. You know, next thing I know, I'm I'm being touted as an interviewer. You know, I didn't plan it. I didn't think about it early on. It wasn't an ambition of mine, but that's just what happened. It sounds kind of like a cliche, but I have to ask it. Do you have this view that every single person can teach you something. Well, not every single person. I mean, realistic. I, I don't think. I, I don't think. <laughs> I need a lot of. You know, Norman Mailer once distinguished, and I write about that in my book too, to distinguish between stupid people and dumb people, right? And he says he he needles stupid people. Dumb people have made a decision in their lives, you know, that, you know, whatever. I mean, it's dumb people are just dumb, but stupid people made a decision in their lives that they'll just be stupid, you know, and, and, and who needs to be around that? I've been around some stupid people. I don't think I've ever learned anything from them other than they could become a character in a book you write, you know, because you want to, you want that character can be amusing. So no, I, I would like to think that, but. I learn a lot from young people from when I was when I was teaching at UCLA and why I want to go back and, and I'm going to go back to teaching is because it's uh, I, I there's a lot I don't know. There's a lot of references I don't know anymore. You know, I don't follow all the the the, the latest music, let's say, or, or, you know, what people are 
reading and whatever. So I, 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 it, I think it, it's very important to have that in your life, you know. You know, my wife has made a lot of friends with older people. And, you know, she, she's been very close to a number of women. Uh, and, and, you know, she had a yoga master and all this stuff. They, they've all died, you know, that one by one. And I see, and I said to her, you got to stop get, getting to be closer with younger people because you've had a rich life. But it's like my life, too. I mean, I was close with John Houston. I got to know Capote, you know, uh, uh, some people, Brando, you know, I mean, I mean, I got to know them to a point where, you know, I could talk with them. I could get together with them. But, you know, one by one, they get older, they die. And you start saying, well, you got to go young. <laughs> it's very important to go young. I suppose something that's interesting about this profession is, you know, you have kind of a, you end up having a connection to people. They may not be your friends, but Every now and then I'll see in the newspaper, oh, someone I interviewed died. Yeah, some to me. Well, yeah. you know, that happened to me with, when I was writing about the uh, for Long Island magazines, the Sunday magazine section. I wrote about this guy who built a plane in his house. And um, when the article came out, he was on the cover. He died three days before. I wrote about somebody going up in an airplane died in a crash. I wrote somebody about the guy who owned the demolition, uh, the demolition derby thing. Uh, and, and they put him a big picture of him in the thing. He died the week it came out. There was another guy. I mean, it was like everybody I was writing about that when it came, the article came out, the person had died. I said, oh, I, got the kids of death. I can't talk about this to anybody. So yeah, that happens. And now, especially, you know, I start seeing, you know, even just the, the, the Zsa Zsa Gabor case, you know, or when Henry Fonda died in 1980, whenever, four or something like three or four or five, you know, I got a call from the LA times. Uh, can I write an op-ed piece about him? You know, that they wanted, I, I wrote something, in, in an hour, sent it to them. It was in the newspaper the next day. I mean, there's a New York Times syndicate. I write sometimes for them. I asked them, do you want anything on Jaja? They said, it's too late. This is just a few hours after she had died. You have to have something written for them before the person dies so that as soon as someone dies, they press a button and 15 seconds later, they have it around the world. So do I want to be that kind of obit writer? You know, right? I, I said, I really don't. I don't, I don't. I don't get inspired to write about someone like that unless I hear that they died. And then I sit down and I write something in my journal. And, you know, it's it's already uh, I mean, it's so it's so fleeting, isn't it? I mean, that you die, you get one day more of fame <laughs> in the newspapers around the world, and two days later, that's it. It's too late. <laughs> hmm. For anyone you have interviewed, what do you want them to say about Lawrence Grobel? How do you want them to view you? Well, I'd love them to just read my work. I'd love to, you know, I'd love them to discover my some of my books. I've written a couple of novels that I'm very proud of. One's called Begin Again, Finnegan, and the other is uh, Catch a Fallen Star. I spent years writing Catch a Fallen Star. Begin Again, Finnegan came to me quickly, and I wrote that in less than a year. I've written a, you know, a book about a satire on yoga called you know, Yoga, no, you know, no Schmoga. I loved writing it. I think it's very funny. I've written a novella, two novellas. One is the Black Eyes of Akba. The other one is called Commando X. Commando X is probably the first hip hop kind of piece 
you know, I wrote that years ago and I just have it sitting around, but once in a while I take it out to read to people because it's very, it's all rhythmic and whatever. Anyway, they're both novellas. They cost two ninety nine on, I put them out as books on Amazon, but I think a lot of my work will be discovered one day. I hope then I uh, let, let people judge by my work. I'd like to be so, so to speak discovered because it, it's, there's just a lot of work I have put out that I, I'm proud of. I'm proud of everything I've ever put out. I don't have anything that I'm, you know, wish I could take back. And so I'm, I'm happy about that. But what I wish other people will think is just, I don't know, I, whatever they want to think, but at least give the books a chance so they can see something new, something different, something unexpected, maybe. For more information, you can visit lawrencegrobel.com. That's G-R-O-B-E-L. So just open-ended, for anyone listening, go anywhere you want with this. What would you say to them? I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope that uh, maybe you've learned something yourself. I hope you take a look at you talking to me or my memoir, You Show Me Yours, which is really covers my my early life, but it talks about the development of a writer. And I wish you all a very happy holiday. So my last question, who is Lawrence Grobel? <laughs> well, I'll let you know that when I come to Atlanta, if I do, and uh, we'll have dinner together. Well, Larry, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. It's been it's been a pleasure, and I probably talk too much on each of the topics you've asked me about, but I hope that, that uh, it didn't bore people. You were very interesting. I appreciate it a lot. Okay. Well, thank you, Paul. I'll see you soon, I hope. I hope so. Okay. Godspeed. Take care. Godspeed. That was the Lawrence Grobel interview. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed talking to him. I hope I get the chance to speak with him again. Something that occurred to me after having met him, Larry is one of those guys. He can ask you a question that is seemingly personal. Well, it is personal. And I'm speaking from experience here. Larry came out to Atlanta not too long ago, and he took my wife and I out to dinner at the Buckhead Diner. Great restaurant. We had some good food. We had some dessert. He brought along a bottle of wine, and it was a really nice experience. But when we got home, we were commenting that he asked some questions that were personal. But from Larry, it just seemed like the most natural thing in the world. And I think that that's a gift that he has. Not everyone has that gift, but it's probably why he's gotten such great stuff from people through the years. He has the kind of personality that you feel like you could tell him anything. You could spend a certain amount of time in the restroom, and I believe that Larry could be the one to ask you, Do you have an upset stomach? What is it? You can tell me. Would you like some Imodium AD? I have some. <laughs> I'm being only partially jocular here, but that's his gift. As I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, my introduction to his work was through his book, The Art of the Interview, and I've had the chance to read his fiction, Catch a Fallen Star. It was a great book. I could not put it down. I can't remember the last time that I devoured a book like that. Speaking of Larry Grobel... I would recommend you check out his Facebook page. Like him. He posts a lot of things. Videos, photos, recollections. He comments on certain things 
in the current news. He's very active, so it's a good place to keep apprised of his activities. You can find the link to his Facebook page from his website, lawrencegrobell.com. If you enjoy the Paul Leslie Hour, I hope you consider subscribing. We come out with new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if you like the podcast, consider rating and reviewing. It does help other people find the podcast when you do so. You can also leave us a message on our hotline. You can leave a voicemail, and if I think the listeners would be interested in what you have to say, I may play it back on the show. Just call 912-376-9529. Well, that's all I've got for this time. Thanks for spending time with us. Until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. Recorded, engineered, and mixed by Henry Jordan of Jordan Digital Studios. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.